everybody. So good to see you this evening. It's such an honor for me to be here with you. Um, fun to be part of this Advent series. I hope that the Advent season so far has been enjoyable for you. I hope it's been a time of reflection and a time that has been meaningful for you and will continue to be as we as a church and as the body of Christ continue to anticipate the coming of Christ. And uh, I hope that maybe what we talk about here this evening might even heighten that alertness and awareness a little bit. I am so glad to be here with you and so glad to be bringing up the end of this Advent series. So this is our last evening together for the year and then we will be together again on January 11th when we start our classes again on January 11th. Um, but we're gonna finish it here this evening. Why don't you pray with me, bow your heads and let's say a prayer and get this evening started. Heavenly Father, we are beyond grateful for the many gifts that you have given us. We're so happy to, to be the recipients of such grace and such mercy that we celebrate at this time of year, part of which is the community that we have with each other, the togetherness that we have, the way we can gather in places like this and times like this in love for one another and appreciation for one another, lifting one another in prayer and helping one another as we walk through this life of faith together. We dedicate this time to you, Father, and uh, ask that beyond anything else that your name would be honored and glorified in it. And it's in the powerful name of King Jesus we pray, amen. So this time of year, Advent, um, is a word, this, this idea of Advent, this season of Advent, is something that when I was growing up, I didn't hear a lot about. I didn't hear the word Advent repeated very often. We would talk about it from time to time at church, but it was, it was not really an integral part of my growing up years. Neither was Lent, nor All Souls Day, nor things like Ash Wednesday, or things like that, the, the liturgical calendar was not part of the tradition in which I grew up, which by the way was the Church of God, the tradition that, that our church is associated with. This tradition, the way, the way we've always done church, just didn't pay a lot of attention to the liturgical calendar, what I've later come to call the liturgical calendar, that is set around these large holy seasons of the year. The two big ones are Easter and Christmas. Easter being the highest and holiest day on the Christian calendar and the season of Lent that precedes it for six weeks that precedes Easter so that we can prepare our hearts and our minds, um, preparing ourselves for the celebration of what Jesus did when he died and then was resurrected, was, was brought back to life again. And then Christmas, the second highest holiest day on the liturgical year that is preceded by the season of Advent, which is a season of anticipation, of holy waiting, of, an, of, of waiting, of, ex, of expectation, of the coming of Christ. These were simply not things that, that we paid a lot of attention to in, uh, in, in the tradition in which I grew up. But later, as I have um, studied somewhat in um, 
more formal kind of schooling, but also just gotten to know Christians from other traditions and other beliefs, been able to interview and talk to and, um, and get to know some of the, of the things that have become meaningful to some of my brothers and sisters in Christ, these things have come to have a profound meaning for me. Particular, these celebrations, these saints' days, and, and the kind of the times of the year that the church sets aside for a particular type of celebration, these things have become very, very significant and, and, and come, become enriched with very deep meaning for me. And I hope that I can relay a little bit of that for you and maybe heighten um, the sense of alertness with which you travel through now the rest of our Advent season. We're almost, um, we're, we're more than halfway through it, but I hope that, I hope that this might, um, that this might uh, wake you up a little bit as it has me. So in order to do that, however, what I'm going to need to do to help you kind of understand how I could have been raised in a church and, and, you know, for lack of a better term, I'll say ignorant of the liturgical calendar, how that could have happened, I just need to run us through very quickly um, about 2,000 years of church history. Are you okay with that? So buckle your seatbelts, I'm gonna talk really fast. Um, and I'm just gonna give you a really, really broad overview of, of how this might have come to how this might have come to pass, how this might be. So we start with the, the presence of Jesus of Nazareth on the earth, the itinerant rabbi teacher, who was also the Messiah and the King, the second person of the Trinity. And he came to the planet and he had this earthly ministry as, a, as an itinerant rabbi. He traveled around and he spoke. And while he did that, he developed uh, deep friendships with people that were, uh, that were here with him. People who had very, very meaningful interactions with Jesus. Now, there were 12 men who were considered his disciples. They were his tightest friends, his tightest group of, of friends. And they were with him night and day, night and day. There was a larger group of people. We don't know how large this was, but a group of people that would have considered themselves his followers. And they were sort of like groupies everywhere he went they would be there to listen to him. Whenever he looked like he was getting ready to teach, which in that day he meant that he would have found a somewhat comfortable position in which to sit, and he would have sat down to teach. We stand up to teach, but they would have sat down to teach. And this group of people would have waited for him to do that, and then they would have taken out their notebooks and pens and iPads, and they would have prepared themselves to hear a message and to remember what was said. They were followers of Jesus Christ. So when Jesus lived out this relatively short time of ministry on earth, about three years, and then um, he was crucified, and then he was raised from the dead, and then he lived a little bit longer among the people, and then he ascended into heaven. And so now on this day, while this group of people, the 12 and plus there were others there who watched the clouds close over Jesus' feet, and they thought to themselves, they, they just sort of stood there, I'm sure, in stunned silence for a while, and then they looked at each other and just like we would have probably done, they were like, now what do we do? Now what do we do? Well, now what do we do? And we know now what they didn't know then, that the answer to that question was church. <laughs> they, were, they were going to, to be together and be believers and they did, they did what, what we would have probably done in a, in a situation like that. They just continued to get together 
They, they just continued to be together. And then they would, they would uh, gather together. They'd say, hey, we're meeting over at so-and-so's house and we're gonna sit around. And they would just gather and they would tell each other stories. They would say, wow, before I met Jesus, this is what my life was like. And then this is how I met him. I was healed. I was saved. I saw the light. My life was completely transformed. These people had these amazing, transformative interactions with Jesus himself. And they gathered together to just tell each other stories. I would tell my story, and you would tell your story. And we'd go around the circle, and we'd tell our stories of Jesus and they got, they got to where nobody wanted to miss any of these meetings, and so they scheduled their meetings. They would get to where they said, okay, this is where we're going to meet, and this is what we're going to do. And they, they chose Sundays a lot of the time because that was the day that Jesus was raised from the dead, and they wanted to remember that. And so while they were still, most of them, practicing Jews, they got together on Saturday to worship in the synagogue, and then they would get together on Sundays also. And they would share meals together. They would talk together. They would talk about scriptures and how scripture applied. They would talk about, I remember when Jesus said this. I remember when Jesus said that. Remember this sermon where he made this point and this point and this point. And they simply talked about Jesus and who he was and how they had impacted their lives. And they continued to just get together and get together and share meals and share stories. And that is how the church started. They didn't want to miss a meeting. They didn't want to miss a thing. There is a Greek word for get together. Do you wanna hear it? It's a Greek word for get together. The word is ekklesia. Ekklesia means church. We still hear this word echoed in our English in ecclesiology and ecclesiastical. The ecclesia was the assembling or the gathering of the body of believers, people whose lives had been impacted in amazing ways by the person of Jesus Christ. They just continued to get together and we call it the gathering or the get togethers or the church. At, for the first 300 years of the church's history, so from the time of Jesus to, the, to about the year 300, to be precise, it was 312, the church existed for this 300 years under persecution. They were living in an empire, the Roman Empire, in which not only was it not popular to be a Christian, it wasn't a good idea to be a Christian, it really wasn't safe to be a Christian. It was against the law to be a Christian. So these first 300 years, longer than our nation has been a nation, for the first 300 years, they, they got together, they did their gatherings and their get-togethers so many times underground or in catacombs or in secret places. Okay, there were no big swelling symphonic hymns. They couldn't sing loud. They couldn't worship loud. They couldn't have church anything like the way we do because it was against the law. And then the year that I referred to, 312, was a year that something crazy happened. The emperor of the Roman Empire, his name was Constantine, and he became a Christian. It's a very cool story. We don't know how much of it is legend and how much of it is actually true. But according to the legend, he became a Christian on the same day that he became emperor of Rome. He had a Christian mama. Her name was Helena. And she told him about Jesus while he was growing up. And then there came a day, a crisis, 
that he, he faced the person of Jesus of Nazareth and he placed his faith in Jesus, Constantine. Now, the Roman emperor is a Christian. That changed everything. That changed everything for our history. Now, not only was it legal to be a Christian, but now it became politically expedient to become a Christian. Now it became a good idea. It was the popular thing to do all of a sudden. And almost overnight, the history of, of our Christian faith changed because of the conversion of this one man. Now we could have our get-togethers out in public. Now we didn't have to hide underground in order to get together. We got to have our gatherings in front of other people and out in the open. Now we could sing loud songs. Now we could worship out loud. Now we could build buildings that were dedicated to the worship of God. In like 350 or 356, the first actual church building was built 300 years after the church had come into existence was the first time they'd either ga gathered in a public place or built a public place that was dedicated to the worship of God. Now, for the next 1,000 years, more than that, a little bit more than that, so now we're taken from the year 312 when Constantine became a believer in Christ. For the next over 1,000 years, we go through a period of time in European history called the Dark Ages or the Middle Ages, and during this time, the church became firmly established as the state religion. It was the true way. It was the one thing. It was, it was the Catholic, or the other word for that is universal, the universal church or faith. And everybody was part of it, at least in this part of the world. This is, this is the, the European heritage, that this was the church. It was the universal church. And during that time, we now establish this series of traditions and things that become done year after year after year and, and certain themes and ideas and celebrations and holy days become not only tradition, but become part of the, of the fabric of Christianity. Our high and holy days, our celebrations of these holy days came out of this time period. And so for this first 1,500 years of the church's history, we established this series of traditions. And then in the year 1517, in the year 1517, so now we're way over here on the timeline, a guy named Martin Luther, along with a bunch of his friends, he wasn't alone in this. We credit him mostly for the beginning of what we call the Protestant Reformation. One of the key elements of the Protestant Reformation was the invention of the printing press because now the Bible was able to be printed off hundreds of copies at a time. It was printed off on a printing press rather than being written by hand and therefore everyone was able to have, not everyone, but almost everyone, way, way more people, were able to have and to hold and to read the Bible for themselves. Because of this and this little thing called the Enlightenment that was happening around the same time, many, many more people were understanding um, 
uh, languages were being educated and they had the printed word. So now they could read the Bible for themselves. And people like Martin Luther and other people of that time, they began to read the actual words of scripture for themselves. And they began to compare it with these traditions that had been taking place over the last 1500 years. And they began to say, we're not seeing some of this in scripture. We're not seeing some of what we're practicing actually in the words of scripture. Therefore, I protest. I need to protest a few things. I need to ask you a few questions, he says to the church. 95 theses. He pounded to the door of the Wittenberg Chapel in the year 1517. This coming year is the 500th anniversary of Martin Luther in the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. That's how I was raised in the church. Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, small group, youth group, every group. I was there and I still didn't hear about some of the traditions of the church because I was part of the Protestant, the protesters who said, we're gonna take issue with some of the things that we're not finding in scripture. They wanted to, to, to take the Bible. They wanna go back to Acts chapter one, chapter two, chapter three, chapter four. They looked at the beginning of the church, like I talked about, where the church was just beginning. Jesus just ascended into heaven. And I say, we wanna return our practices to that simple and true time. We want our church practices to look like that. And so as they did that, they eliminated and sometimes rejected and, and, and completely set aside a lot of our church traditions that had come out of this 1500 years of church history. That's how that happened. They rejected those things. Now, I've come to a place in my own life and, and all of us are in a different place. I love my heritage. I love my church of God heritage. I cannot be more grateful to my family for raising me the way they did. But as I began to see some of this broader church history and as I began to understand some of these traditions, I felt like, ah, oh, I felt like I was, I was seeing a whole new picture. I felt like I was finally rising above a tree line or something and I could see horizon to horizon. I felt like I was living out my little bitty story within the context of a much wider story that I was starting to understand for the first time and, and, and to, to live in it and to receive it and to be part of that large story. I have thoroughly enjoyed knowing that I'm playing my little part on my little, little piece of the stage in church history. And I pray that I'm able to do that in a way that is faithful as those who have gone before me. I feel like I'm part of a story that God has been writing since long, long, long before I got here, long before my grandparents got here, long before this nation was even formed, and, and, and so far back in history, I'm finally connecting with it. I'm feeling like I'm part of it. And part of this tradition, part of these traditions that came out of that 1,500 years of history before the Protestant Reformation are things like Lent and Advent, high and holy days, days that we celebrate the lives of the saints who lived in one way or another, ways that are exemplary for us, way that tell us how to live the Christian life, those kind of celebrations, and Advent is one of those. Advent is a season that we use to set aside right before Christmas, leading up to Christmas. It is a season 
of holy expectation, of wide-eyed wonder. The king is coming. The king is coming. How do we prepare for the coming of a king? One of the ways that we do this is an Advent wreath. This came out of those middle dark ages. We use symbols that are visible, things that we can place in our churches, things that we, we use in our, in our gathering places where we get together. And we use these symbols to remind one another of the things that are important of our faith. During that 1,500 years, the reason they called it the Dark Ages is because it, it, the people of that time were largely illiterate. They couldn't read. They didn't, they didn't have, a prop, they didn't have a, what I would call a proper education, what we would call today a proper education. They weren't able to read print, so they couldn't come to church and get like a worship folder and go, okay, well, this is what day it is, and this is what time it is, and this is what we're doing today. And so the church would drape itself in vestments, colored vestments that would tell the people what time of year it is. It was the church who signaled to the community when it's time to turn the, the page of the calendar and move into the next season. And an Advent wreath would appear at the season of Advent. The wreath is round and it's usually covered with greenery and it has four candles all around the outside. And if you've been here for the last few weeks, you've seen that we light one candle every week of Advent. There are four candles that go around the outside of the ring of the Advent wreath and one candle that stands in the middle, that's called the Christ candle. It's not universal. You've probably been to lots of churches where they didn't have the, the Christ candle in the middle. But around the outside, there are four candles, and we light them one week at a time. We start with the fourth week out, the first day of Advent, and we light the first candle. The next week, we light the first and the second, and then the first, second, and third, and so on, until all the candles around the ring of the Advent wreath are lit. This Advent wreath was to help signify to help tell people, to help people enter into the worship and the season of the church. There are four candles around the outside of the Advent wreath for a reason. Those four candles represent the 400 years of silence that the church endured from God. In the Old Testament, we read that God was always reaching out and touching his people. He was communicating with his people through prophets. There would be a, a certain man or woman. God would give them a vision. They were also called seers, S-E-E-E-R-S. They were called seers. God would give them a vision, and then he would ask them to write that down and then to translate to the people what his message was. Thus saith the Lord. And throughout our Old Testament, we see these prophets and they arrive on the scene and they speak their message, the message that, that God has for the people, and then, uh, and then they would be interpreted for the people. So from the end of Malachi, the last book of our Old Testament, to the beginning of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Gospels in our New Testament, there were 400 years of silence. God had not spoken to his people. There were no prophets. There was no, thus saith the Lord. God had promised a king. He had promised a Messiah. 
He had promised that he would send a savior into the world. And then silence. 400 years of awkward, weird, uncomfortable silence. And then this happened. I'm reading from John chapter 1, the prologue. It starts like this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the only Son, from the Father, full of grace and truth. God broke 400 years of silence with a word, with his word, Christ the King, the second person of the Trinity, became flesh, became a human being, and came to the earth. In this little passage, we learn several wonderful things about Jesus. One is that Jesus, the word, is eternal. He was in the beginning. He was in the very beginning. There was never a time when he did not exist. This is why we hang greenery around our churches, around our homes. This is why so many times greenery is part of the Advent wreath, evergreens. Because while the whole rest of the, of the landscape of the earth looks for all practical purposes like it's dead, evergreens stand bright green in the landscape. And they live, they seem to be eternally living. And so evergreens signify this eternality of Christ, of Jesus himself. Jesus is the light, says this passage. He brings light, the light of men. Isaiah chapter nine and verse two is a scripture we read over and over again during this Advent season. And it says this, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living, does this not sound like us? <laughs> does this not sound like us? On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has shined. A light has dawned. Jesus said of himself throughout his ministry, I am the light of the world. I am the light. And in this passage, in John chapter one, the true light that gives light to everyone is coming. It's coming into the world. We know that Jesus is eternal. We know that Jesus means life and that Jesus means light. But the word that's most often repeated through that passage is word, W-O-R-D. The word, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. This is the word, the word is the word, 
that is used to describe Jesus in this passage. The original listeners would have heard a word and the original readers of of John's gospel would have read it in Greek and it would have been written logos, L-O-G-O-S is how we write it with our um, alphabet. That word would have had significant impact and meaning for them. When they heard the word word, they would have heard rationale, reason. Into the world has come ration. Into the world has come reason. Into the world has come, has come articulate thought, spoken aloud. The word has come. The ultimate coherent idea has been spoken out loud. And you'll notice that most thoughts don't really have a full impact until they go from being a thought to being a word. Until they are articulated, they don't, they don't gel or make a lot of sense. Um, I practice this in my daily life. Um, I wish that I could say I had a very high and holy practice of journaling. I sometimes do that, I, I love to journal, but really what I do is talk to myself. Um, I, I know that you probably, I know that probably no one else in this room talks to themselves. Um, one day I was like standing, I think in my closet, I was like planning out my wardrobe, you know, for the week. I could wear this, I could wear that. And, and as I'm thinking through the week, well, I automatically start thinking through things, you know, that I'm, meetings I'm gonna have, decisions I need to make, blah, 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 whatever. And I start saying, talking about it out loud. And I'm like, I said this to myself. And then I said that to myself. And I'm like, well, but there, then there's that. And then there's that. Before I know it, I'm in like this full-blown argument with my own self. And my husband came up behind me and goes, Deidre, what are you doing? And I'm like, ah, just about came out of my skin. I've been caught, you know, talking to myself, actually arguing with myself. I was so frightened, I like forgot every point that I had made. And I'm like, oh, I was making progress in this argument with myself. And I totally had to start all over again. Because thoughts are just thoughts. They're just kind of formless. They don't make a lot of sense until they're either spoken out loud or written down. Have you noticed that? When you write something down, it's like, oh, either that's the dumbest thing I've ever said or, oh, that makes a lot of sense. But they start to kind of make sense. This, this is the word that was articulate. It was spoken aloud. It was said to us in a way that made sense. It's rational. It's reasonable. This is what God, this is exactly the way God would work. This means that when we trust Christ and when we gather as believers, we don't have to check our brains at the door. This is where we fully engage our minds because this is rational. This is reasonable. This is exactly how God would do this if God were gonna do it. Now, if this sounds familiar to you, in the beginning was the word because John, our author, was writing in deliberate, in the same deliberate cadence and the same deliberate words as Genesis 1, 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. I want you to try to appreciate the situation that John is in. God has given John a vision, a picture, like maybe a movie screen playing in his head of what creation was like. I'm sorry, this is not John, this is Moses. This, of what creation was like. 
the vision of what those moments were like. And, and so now I want you to write this down so that other people can understand it. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and it was void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. It was formless and void. There were waters, it was deep. There was darkness and God was there. God was there and the spirit of God was hovering. The spirit of God was hovering and then something happened. The first thing happened. God spoke. God said. God took a big, deep breath of his own spirit, and he spoke a word, and he said, let there be light. Light. And the cosmos responded I would love to have been there. Not that I could have survived it, but wouldn't that be something? To see the cosmos respond to God's word, let there be light, and there was light. God the Father created. God the Spirit, the breath, the wind of God hovered over the surface of the chaos, and then God spoke, and there was order, there was light, there was reason, there was rationale. God, God's word is light, God's word brings light. Jesus brings the light, he brings revelation, not confusion. This is why so many times, when people are telling their own stories, their own testimonies, they might seem like they're searching for words or searching for ways to articulate it. And so many times they, they just come up with something like, well, it was like, it was like I was living in darkness or confusion. It was like I didn't really see things straight. And then, and then I met Christ, then I met Jesus. And it was like somebody flipped on the light switch, the lights came on and I began to see myself and I began to see the world around me and the precious people around me in a whole new light. I began to understand it in a brand new way when I met Jesus because he is the bringer of light. He is light. As we celebrate Advent, you'll see lights everywhere. We put lights all over the place. Lights are all through the sanctuary. Lights are wherever we gather, little tiny twinkle lights everywhere, and they are to represent the light that is coming into the world. As you go home and you turn on the lights or you drive home and you see the lights in the neighborhoods, let those lights remind you of the light of Christ. So as we now, we finish out our Advent season, just a little longer to go. I want you to remember three Advents. There are actually three Advents that we celebrate at the time of Christmas. There's the first advent. The word advent simply means coming or the coming. The first advent is what happened at Bethlehem. It was the first coming of Jesus when he came to the earth as a tiny baby. When he was born in the city of Bethlehem to a teenage girl named Mary. Joseph was there. Joseph helped care for, for Mary and for Jesus. That was a local event. It happened in an isolated place, Bethlehem, 
in Israel. It was a local event with global ramifications. The first coming or the first advent of Jesus. And we also, we also look forward at the time of Advent. We look forward to the second Advent or the second coming of Jesus. We talk about this in our churches a lot. We believe, have always believed that Jesus is coming again. The first coming of Jesus was a, was a local event with global ramifications. We're still celebrating it. We're still talking about it 2,000 years later. It has transformed and changed and for many of us defined our lives on this planet 2,000 years later because of this event, the first coming. The second coming will be a cosmic event. No one in all the universe Whatever, wherever your imagination can go with that is going to miss the second coming of Jesus. Our same author from John, from John the Gospel, now writes in Revelation, chapter 21, of the second coming. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I saw the holy city the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eye and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. The former things have passed away. The first coming in Bethlehem made it possible now for us to live in anticipation, expectation, in holy wonder of the second coming that will come when Jesus returns to earth when he takes his eternal throne, when all of everything that we know and as we know it will pass away and, and, and we will finally be one unified church. We will do, we'll have nothing but worship on our minds to, to know who God is and to be there and to be able to see him. But we now live in the middle between the first coming and the second coming. It's, it's like a personal coming or advent that we live in now. We live in a time where we can experience a very personal and intimate transaction with God, where Jesus himself comes to each one of us, where he himself presents himself to us as king. What will we do? What will we do with our own intimate coming of Christ? The Bethlehem event was a local event with global ramifications. The second coming will be a cosmic event that no one could possibly miss. This middle one is an intimate event. It happens between you and Jesus, and it is very possible to miss it. The true light which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, 
and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people didn't receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh of man, but of God. But to those who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, they become the children of God. That's my challenge for Advent. That's my challenge for, for the rest of this season and, and for the celebration of Christmas Day itself. That we would receive, that we would believe, that we would stand in wonder, in awe and anticipation. I think it's significant that Advent on the liturgical calendar is the beginning of the new year. We think of January 1st as New Year's Day. But on the liturgical calendar, the first Sunday of Advent is New Year's Day. That means that the, that the first part of the year is this season of waiting, of silence, of quiet, of relative darkness. That means that at this season of the year, we cultivate a sense of anticipation. The new year is not something you run into headlong at a breakneck pace. The new year is something that you sit back and you quietly receive in a spirit of anticipation. The Hebrew imagination worked this way. Every day in their, in, in their frame of thinking, the way they arranged their economy, their every day begins in the Hebrew calendar at sunset. The sun goes down and that's the beginning of a new day. I think, I don't know about you, but I could really get into a calendar where the first thing on my to-do list every day is to go to bed. <laughs> Take it easy, close your eyes. You know what this teaches us? The Hebrew people were, were prepared for this. That if you give it a rest, if you lie down, if you take your hand off the wheel, if you close your eyes, if you go to sleep and you lose control, the world is not gonna spin off its axis. The world is ruled by a sovereign and good king. We are subjects of this kingdom and this kingdom is not in trouble. This kingdom is solid and it is sure. The foundation of it, we can trust in the foundation of it because we can trust in our king who is holding the foundation of it. We don't have to worry about being in control. We don't have to worry about rushing into our to-do list. The first thing we do is rest. In the Hebrew way of thinking, they, every night's sleep was, was in preparation for the activity of the day to come. You know, we think about sleep as recovery from the, oh, the day I just had. Oh, I gotta go to bed and recover from it. But for them, rest was something much more holy. It was set aside. It was used as preparation for the activities that are to come. Think of the rest of your season of Advent this way. This is preparation for the year that is to come. I'm gonna challenge you to take this time 
to take some quiet, take a break, sit down, be quiet, anticipate, expect. Get into a Bible reading program or a, or a daily devotional or something where you can sit down quietly and cultivate this sense of expectation and hope and wonder. Because our world is in the middle of the frenzy of the holiday season, this is gonna be an act of pure rebellion against the culture around you. This is not gonna win you any popularity contest. It's not gonna make you look good among your friends. But I want you to really think about that. Consider this time of holy expectation and anticipation. This is all for one reason, so that we don't miss the middle advent altogether. So that Jesus doesn't come to those who are his own and his own didn't even recognize him, didn't even see him coming. Prepare in this way for the light. One more word for you. Go ahead and stand up. I want you to stand up. Let me give you this last word of encouragement before you go. Jesus said throughout his ministry, he described himself as the light of the world. He said, I'm the light of the world. The gospel writers and the other writers of the New Testament describe Jesus as the light. He brings light, rationale, reason, revelation. He clarifies things. He doesn't add confusion. He adds clarity. He adds light. But when Jesus taught his Sermon on the Mount, the sermon in which and by which he described his kingdom to his followers, he said, you're the light of the world. You go, you shine. You take your story of how Jesus has impacted your own life, who you are, the place on the stage which you occupy in history, and you ask yourself, Am I shining brightly? Am I living the light that God has called me to live? As you see the Christmas lights, all the twinkle lights around the church and around the city, imagine one of those lights represents you. You're shining. You're the light of the world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that by your grace and mercy, we will receive the light that you have given us. We will understand ourselves in our place in this world, your kingdom, and that we will shine with your story into the darkness. In Jesus' powerful name we pray, amen. Thank you. Enjoy the rest of the season.